Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today is a day to remember. Radio broadcasters all across Canada have come together in partnership with Gord Downey and Cheney Wenjack Fund to listen to the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. We'll let you know how you can do something about it as well. As offices across Canada begin to reopen, experts say unvaccinated workers might have a rocky return to the office. Patrick Stepanian, legal manager with Peninsula Canada, joins us to talk about that. And Ontario's roadmap to reopen will mean more family, more friends, and fewer restrictions for all Ontarians, and that includes residents of long-term care homes. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canadian radio broadcasters uh, have joined forces today in recognition of National Indigenous History Month. Uh, broadcasters from right across the country, including the chorus entertainment stations, of course, uh, are joining together today in a collaboration to amplify, to elevate, to listen to, and to learn from Indigenous voices. It's called A Day to Listen. And in partnership with the Gord Downey and Cheney Wenjack Fund, A Day to Listen is dedicated to sharing stories from Indigenous leaders, residential school survivors, elders, musicians, and teachers through the course of the day. We have some very special guests who will uh, bring those stories to you uh, through the course of our program, and it will continue on right through the day on uh, both uh, 980 CFPL and 900 CHML. We're learning probably more than we ever knew about residential schools, which is one of the problems, I guess. There just was no information about that for the longest time, or we weren't paying attention probably a combination of the two. Now we are starting to understand, and, and we are shocked, of course, when we hear the revelations in Kamloops and, and of course, in Saskatchewan, hundreds of unmarked graves. Uh, it's it's a, a situation that we need to talk about because, as we mentioned before, uh, you can't have truth and reconciliation until we have truth. And uh, that's what we're seeking here right now. Joining us to uh, begin the program today, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Patricia Doyle-Bedwell, who is a Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us on this very special day. Oh, thank you. And I'm not a doctor yet. Well, you're getting there. I'm getting there, maybe, but I'm not a doctor yet. But thank you. Let's, uh, thank you for uh, having me. Well, the, 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 I wanted to get some perspective on this, and we just mentioned about the hundreds of unmarked graves uh, that have been discovered so far. But as you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from a few years ago uh, concluded that there were probably more than 4,000 children who died yeah. while attending residential schools. Uh, in, in any other society, at any other time, Patricia, that would be a groundbreaking story. We'd have to find out what, how, how did this happen. Why so yeah. little talk about this? Why so little story? Why so little history about this? Well, I think that part of the difficulty, um, well, this has been, like, I grew up in the Mi'kmaq community, and I've heard stories, and my mom was a residential school survivor, so I've heard the stories, different people in my family and my friends that have gone to residential school in Nova Scotia. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal People came out in 1995 or 96, and there was a, a lot of... Um, when they did their traveling, there was a lot of people that told their stories about residential school. And then, of course, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And I think that what happens is that people don't want to read a seven-volume uh, history or a seven-volume RCAP report. And then I think what happened in Kamloops is that when that came out, um, one of the stories that really got to me and I know it got to a lot of my uh, non-Indigenous friends, was that one of the one of the bodies found was of a three-year-old mm-hmm. kid. And I think that really touched people. And you're right, this would have been a major story. I mean, if any kind of genocidal um, crime in 
any other country would uh, be, you know, front page news. And uh, and I'm glad now, at least I'm glad now that um, despite all the reports and papers that have been written that this is finally touching the hearts of Canadians. I'm very happy about that. I'm very sad about the how many children we lost. There's no question about that. I'm like heartbroken and shocked about the 751 kids in um, Saskatchewan, the 100 kids in Brandon, the 215 kids in Kamloops. But I think that this time now to, and I'm glad that the radio broadcasters are doing this time to listen because I think maybe this is the time that the stories that are people are going to tell today will touch everyone. Our, our history is, is, is a series of stories, of course, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to harken back. It's, it's been a while, Patricia, since I was in school. Uh, but the history that we learned about Canadian history uh, was was about settling the the West. It was, you know, yeah. you know, you get five acres and a mule and, and off you go, and these brave people went out there. We don't hear the whole story, though. We've never heard the whole story. Uh, and, and, and I guess in, uh, in hindsight right now, we understand that's a major flaw in, in, in what we've done and what we've tried to teach uh, generations and generations now. Uh, is, is, are we at a tipping point now? Are we at the point right now where we are demanding that these stories be told? I think we're at a tipping point now that people need to know the whole story. And, and I know that in all my classes that I teach, I teach you know young people to mature students, and they always come up to me and say, I never learned this in high school. I never learned anything about Indigenous peoples. And when I was in school way back in the 80s, we, I had a course in Canadian social history. And uh, the course ended, I mean, the course went on, of course, on Canadian social history. But with Indigenous peoples, it ended at the fur trade. And there was nothing about treaties. There was nothing about Indigenous rights. There was nothing about our culture, our languages, our governance, nothing. And I teach those issues in my classes, and people are always like, I'm amazed. I never knew this happened. I never knew any of this happened. And I always think about what's going on right now um, with, um, you know, we just had a situation in Halifax where they took the Cornwallis Park and renamed it the Peace and Friendship Park, and they got rid of the Cornwallis statue. And this is the time that we need to start telling those stories. The other side of the, if you want to call it the other side of the story, but I call it the complete story. Like, what happened? And Buffy St. Marie wrote a song talking about the genocide basic to this country's birth. And she was talking about the United States, but that can also apply to Canada. We have to understand, how did Canada get the land out west? What were the treaties about that were signed out west? What were the peace and friendship treaties about that were signed in Atlantic Canada with the Mi'kmaq people? How did the how did Atlantic Canada become part of the British Empire? How do we know what happened? And we need to know that. And with the residential schools, the Indian Act is another thing that surprises my students when I say, well, the government passed the Indian Act in 1876. It's still a valid law it controls our lives from birth to beyond the grave it set up the reserves it set up the residential schools it set you know there's all kinds of issues membership um governance all of those things are covered in the indian act so i think people need to understand that a that legislation still exists b that there's stories that need to be told about who we are as Mi'kmaq people and as indigenous peoples across canada and third that the stories see the stories that are being told today people need to listen to those stories because we grew up with those stories 
and we knew that this happened, that people were taken away, kids were taken away from their homes and sent to residential schools, that some of the some of them didn't come home, and we need to know what happened. And that's why I, the way we look at it, we did a talk last week on speaking truth to power, and one of the uh, panelists said this is the time for the children to speak, and the children are reaching out and speaking to us, and we need to listen, and we need to listen to all the stories and reflect on what does this mean for Canada? What do we need to do now? Patricia, I want to talk about the role of government here. Those sure. are the people that make the laws and that, that govern the country and set the parameters and the standards for us. And, and you brought up the Indian Act uh, a yes. number of years ago when I was doing a TV show at CH called. We did a town hall in Brantford, and it was about Indigenous rights. And, and I started to look into the Indian Act as a, as a piece mm-hmm. of background. I was shocked. I mean, what a repressive piece of legislation. And as you say, yes. it's still on the books today. Now, I know previous governments... Yeah. The previous governments have said, oh, we need to reform this. We're going to talk about this. And, and they may actually get to the extent, I think a couple of times now, where they'll get a number of people from the indigenous communities to, at the table, and they just say, you know what, we can't come to any consensus. We'll do this another time, uh, in a very dismissive attitude. And it's one of the key elements, as you mentioned, for this whole thing. It was the foundation for the, the, the way that indigenous people have lived in this country since yeah. Confederation, before yeah. Confederation. Yeah. I mean, the government has decided who is, an Indian under the Indian Act, who is not an Indian under the Indian Act, where we live, how we govern ourselves. And at one point in time, in the late 1800s to early 1900s, all of our cultural ceremonies, spiritual ceremonies, language, dances, potlatches were all outlawed. So if you were caught practicing any of these traditions, you could technically go to jail. You know, we're shocked so, when we were told about some of the stories that are going on uh, from the residential homes, and we were you know, about how they were robbing those children of their culture and their language. And yeah. we thought this is shocking. The Indian Act it, it, it does the exact same thing. It does the exact same thing. Now, I think now, I mean, the difficulty with the Indian Act, I think, with um, like getting rid of it, is there's some Indigenous leaders that don't want to get rid of it because there's a fear there that we're going to lose like some of the benefits or some of the um, the, the fear that we're going to lose the government, uh, I want to say, responsibility for us. Like there's this idea that the government has a responsibility towards Indigenous peoples. And, uh, but I think that our treaties are stronger than um, the Indian Act. And I think that we need to look very seriously at, I don't want to call it reforming the Indian Act, but looking at ways to... Um, give Indigenous people self-determination, because that's one of the things that's in the um, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, is that we have a right to our culture, language, spirituality, and our governance process. So we need to look at all of that. And uh, with the residential schools, the um, government, the federal government, had responsibility under the Indian Act for education for Indians. Um, And that was part of the residential school structure because the government had that responsibility. The provinces didn't have that responsibility to educate Indigenous students that were on the reserve. And even today, if students from reserves go to school off reserve, go to the provincial school, the band has to pay tuition to send them to that school. So it's those, there's still these I want to call them artifacts <laughs> in place that are 
flowing directly from the Indian Act, and it created the residential schools and uh, even the, um, you know, and the whole purpose of the residential schools was to get rid of the Indian problem, was, as Duncan Campbell Scott said, to continue until there's not a single Indian left in the body politic, to kill the Indian and the child. That was the stated express purpose of the residential schools, and when kids went there, they weren't allowed to speak their own Indigenous language, they weren't allowed to see their families, and when I was doing research on my thesis, on my on residential schools, I was in Ottawa, and I was at the library, the parliamentary library, and I found a letter that my grandfather had written to ask for my mom and her my aunties and uncles to come home, and I was just sitting there like looking at this letter and I asked them if I could take a photocopy of it and they said no but I had to copy it into my notes and I told my mom I said you know granddad wrote a letter to ask for you guys to come home and she said I never even knew that so there's a lot of the story that we didn't know that we need to also find out and there's also as far as government goes they have a great responsibility here um, to pay for the scanning of the grounds, to pay for the DNA analysis. And one of the things that I wish they would do is um, in 2007, there was, um, of course, there were class action suits by the residential school survivors for damages and restitution. And they came up with this idea called the common experience payment. And, um, that they gave every residential school survivor, their families, $10,000 for the first year and 3000 for every year after that because they were in school. And I thought that was wholly inadequate. And I remember one of the lawyers, um, for even for AFN, saying, well, we can't possibly compensate people for what happened. So it's like, then it's okay to give so, them a, so token a token payment. A token amount. Yeah. Right, and that's what uh, I see that as, right? So I think there's a lot that the government can do here um, and take that responsibility seriously that they well, took on. Patricia, we, I, I'm so glad that you were here to kick this off today and, and to tell us these stories. We're going to have many more of these course through the day. Uh, thank you for the great work that you're doing, okay. and uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we can yeah. ca- talk again down the road. Thank you so much for so. being with thank us today. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Patricia Doyle Bedwell, Native Studies Instructor at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are slowly but surely getting out of this and return to work programs in different parts of the country are happening at a different pace. Uh, but one of the problems that I think a lot of employers are going to have to face here, there are some people, uh, uh, I think uh, too many, but some people that are just not going to get vaccinated for a variety of reasons, but they want to go back to work. Well, how does that work out? Is there a stigma? Are you going to have to ask? Do you have to show proof of it? And if you don't, where do you go? How do you work? It's a, it's a conundrum that I think a lot of companies are going to have to deal with, and I'm hoping that they're thinking about it now. But uh, we're pleased to welcome Patrick Stepanian, who is the legal manager at Peninsula Canada, uh, to talk about, uh, well, the, I guess some of the consequences. Patrick, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. How are you this morning? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm a little worried, though, when I, I heard in the news this morning about the number of people that have yet to be vaccinated, uh, That and I think the number was like 25 or 30 percent, say, and they're not going to get vaccinated. At some point, Patrick, they're going to have to be called back to work, uh, in whatever that might be, whether it's a commercial enterprise, an office, a factory, whatever the case might be. How, do you, how does a company handle people like that? Um, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Part of that is, is I guess, the, the, the trick is going to be managing that, that balance of, of 
essentially creating a safe workplace where everybody feels safe and probably looking into being uh, flexible and, and trying to create sort of, I guess you can call them accommodations, where, you know, you might have to be looking for those people, let's say, if they've made, if they're making that choice for personal reasons and, you know, rather than uh, something else, uh, such as a medical reason, um, that there may have to be sort of uh, arrangements made uh, for, for, for where they're working from, where they might actually have to continue uh, working remotely, um, or there may be uh, sort of setups in those workplaces where, you know, you'll have a, a, almost a pod uh, um, that's separate with, with like, you know, plexiglass or something like that. Um, and managing to get to that point, managing sort of the team environment uh, to, to prevent any sort of stigma or, or discrimination or bullying or any kind of pressure from arising is going to be a, a very tricky uh, thing. It's going to cause, I would think, some some friction in the workplace, would it not? I mean, if you're one of those people that, that is not vaccinated, uh, and, and you're basically, I, what you're suggesting, and I guess it is one of the options, uh, you would be segregated from the rest of the workforce and simply say, look, we, we you know, you, whatever your choice is, but we can't have you, you know, close to everybody else uh, because the virus is still out there. We know that. It's, we've been told by so many experts over the last little while that even if we do get back to work, you know, whenever that's going to be, maybe by Labor Day, uh, that there's still the possibility of, of, of variants, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to be cautious. And the workplace is obviously one of those places that we're going to have to be extra cautious. Yep. And that's, I mean, again, employers have sort of that, that responsibility to, to ensure a safe workplace. And so, you, are, you know, measures will have to be taken to ensure that, you know, employees feel safe. And if you're a workplace that has clients or customers coming in, obviously for the sake of your business, really, you're going to want to create an environment uh, that feels safe for those people. So that will entail, you know, maintaining really, um, uh, I guess, you know, know, personal protective equipment policies like masking and distancing. Um, And, uh, you know, you might end up, yeah, down the line having those kind of segregated places. Uh, It may be the case that before you get to that, that, you know, even after we've passed a point, let's say, where, you know, we're reopened, that a workplace might want to maintain sort of a general policy for everybody, including, um, you know, your, 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 your double dose people, uh, mm-hmm. where everybody, uh, you know, being part of a team, you know, being together that you do keep those, that personal equipment on that you do keep, you know, a social distancing policy. At this, I know we're getting into some legal issues here. The, you know, the, the human rights and, and et cetera, et cetera. If somebody chooses not to, you can't force them uh, into that. But I, I guess the other side of that argument is you can make that choice, but there are going to be consequences to it, and, and that you may not like those consequences. But I can see how this would make both sides a little apprehensive, don't you, Patrick? I mean, the, the ones who are not vaccinated are going to say, I don't want to be segregated. And the ones who have had the double vac are going to say, what? I, I, I don't want to be sitting beside somebody who's not vaccinated because they're putting me at risk. So I guess nobody's going to be happy with the situation. That, yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that is definitely a possibility. Um, but, and that's going to be, again, uh, something that's tricky and that we're going to be looking uh, towards, I guess, guidelines and, and rules coming down, uh, hopefully from, you know, the province or, or local health units or municipalities to, to help, to help guide, you know, the crafting of those policies and how to manage that. You talked about options, and, and one of them is what many of us have been doing for the last little while, and that being working from home. But if 
90% of the workforce is back in that workplace, that work environment, and you're on the outside looking in, working from home, and okay, that's great, you're safe, and, and you're keeping the, the employees safe. Uh, but what does that do for, for your, your, I guess, the, your career, really? I mean, if, you, if you're not there in the office, uh, you know, that you're looking to progress, you may be to advance in the company. I mean, there's, certain, there's a certain benefit to being in that, that physical space with everyone else there in situations like that. When you're remote, it, it puts you in a whole different category right now, almost an alienation. Yeah, um, so that is, I mean, for those, for those workers, and again, depending on what the results, the reasons are that you know they're they're remote and they're unvaccinated, right? Again, coming if we're talking again about that personal choice example, uh, it is it is a consequence that they're going to have to keep you know a lookout for uh, for themselves and for their career um, because that's a consequence of the, the choice they made. Um, but if you, I mean, just to go to the other example, if you're looking at sort of the more human rights example, where you know let's say you know there's a medical reason, then uh, there is going to be sort of a delicate balance there between the employee and the employer to to mitigate. Uh, uh, you know, to try and mitigate any kind of negative consequences to that specific employee's, uh, uh, you know, career prospect, let's say. Now, I know there are privacy laws, and, and, and there are some people that are going to say, look, it's none of your business if I got vaccinated or not. But from a, an employer standpoint, is there an argument to be made that, yes, it is their business? We, with, as you mentioned, you have to keep a safe workplace, and you need to know who did and who didn't get the shots. So as an employer, uh, you can ask. <laughs> You can ask, you know, if you've been vaccinated. If you're, you're, you can ask your employees. Vaccinate. Heck, uh, clients and customers can ask. You know, your employees. If you walk in to a, a place of business, you can ask. Uh, the employee again does not have to disclose. Um, but this is the kind of place where you're going to want to sort of start crafting and implementing, uh, you know, policies that encourage, uh, you know, disclosing that that kind of information and, and being open about it. And, you know, some places I know, uh, you know, they're implementing policies that, that encourage or try to reward that behavior, uh, whether it's, you know, you know, a couple of hours uh, paid uh, to go and get that shot and then tell us about it. And, and really the only thing that the employee has to disclose is, you know, I got my first shot and it was Pfizer or I got my second shot and it was Moderna or whatever. Uh, they don't have to disclose anything else beyond that. But again, they really don't have to disclose anything at all. Um, but the, the key is going to be, uh, you know, implementing the kinds of policies and, and, and fostering the kind of environment where employees are, are comfortable sharing that and, and don't have an issue doing so. I, I could see how that would work. We, we, we can't assume that, you know, if there's 10 people that, that say or, you know, could not prove that they have been vaccinated, there may be two or three that are just fervently against the whole idea. We get that. That's a small percentage of the population. But you know how we are in our busy lives. A lot of them may be just saying, you know, I never got around to it. Uh, but if the company were to offer an incentive and say, well, take Tuesday afternoon off and go and get vaccinated, I, I could see there'd be some uptake on that. Yep. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, and, and, and that's ideally that's what you want because that's, as an employer, that starts, that fosters, you know, a, a more positive environment for your workers and it, it fosters really a better business environment where, you know, your clients and customers, if you have those coming in, they're going to be, you know, more comfortable coming in and they can ask that question and they can get a, a, a direct response from, you know, the employee that's serving them. We're, we're kind of going back in time uh, back, to where this whole thing started over a year and a half ago with workplaces. Before, a lot of them started to work remotely and, and in some cases shut down the workplaces. Uh, but we had that, that period of time uh, where 
you know, we were considering PPE and companies were supplying it in many situations like this and sometimes offering, as you mentioned, extra bonuses. And, you know, Sobeys or grocery stores were doing that at one time. Uh, are we going to go back to that now where they're, they're trying to incentivize people, A, to come back and B, uh, to be cautious about these sorts of things? I, I it's it definitely I mean it looks like it and that I mean depending on what your business model is and you know what kind of shop you are let's say um, that's I mean that's likely to be the way to go right is to incentivize incentivize people to to do what ends up really being the right thing. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it does it does it does feel like we're we're running full circle. <laughs> I gotta wonder, uh, as you and I are having this discussion this morning, Patrick, if, if companies are developing a game plan for this, some sort of a strategy, so that it can be in place and be explained to the employers when they make the decision to, to go back to work. Yeah, and that's actually that is definitely something we've been seeing uh, quite a bit of with our clients at Peninsula uh, the last, uh, let's say, month and a half when we, you know, when the vaccine number has, you know, started jumping every few days, kind of thing. Um, is, you know, to have a sort of a vaccination policy in place, to be ready for that, um, and to have, you know, return to work policies and procedure in place, because really part of sort of uh, mitigating any kind of potential uh, negative situation down the line where, you know, you have tension in the workplace is, you know, setting those clear policies ahead of time, communicating them before that magical day comes where, you know, the floodgates fly open and, you know, you know, not suddenly the office is, you know, almost 100% full again kind of thing, is having that in place. And so that's really what we've been uh, working with uh, for, for our clients at Peninsula. Um, so, and that is, I would say, um, you know, the federal government dropped uh, its guidelines uh, a couple of days ago, but that's pertinent to, let's say, that's for you and me in our household. Mm-hmm. But that starts to come off as a, a fairly strong signal uh, to, you know, provinces to uh, local health uh, units and to workplaces that if you haven't thought about this yet it is time it's long past time almost really as you bring up a very cogent point here too uh that's one of the things we found out from the federal guidelines the ultimate decision about what should be done or can't be done is is really up to the local public health units and uh, and they're the ones that will set the standard depending on I guess the impact of the variants of the virus in that particular area. So, you know, the, that's, I, I would think one of the things that the companies have to do is get in touch with public health and say, look at where, what are the guidelines? What are we going to do here? Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is that, you know, if you haven't been communicating to start communicating to put maybe, you know, that's putting a bit of pressure, but really that's, that's part of, you know, working as a community together uh, because those public health units, those, I mean, that's, as you pointed out, right? I mean, you've got some towns, some regions that have, you know, outbreaks of variants and others that are, you know, in the clear so far. And those are the ones, you know, the, the you know, the agencies that are best positioned to uh, to start uh, setting the policies and, and, and setting that sort of path back. Well, it's, it's an important discussion that has to be had. And, and it's going to be part of the new normal, I guess. You can't just say, okay, everybody back to work on September 5th and, uh, you know, just get back into the office and say, okay, where was I before we were so rudely interrupted? Uh, there's, there's going to be a new protocol set in place here. And I'm sure a lot of your clients are calling Peninsula right now and said, hey, hi, Patrick, how do we do this? Uh, and that's not a bad piece of advice to get some professional advice on this. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Thank you so much for the time today. Stay well, and we'll talk again down the road. 
Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. Take care. Patrick Stepanian, legal manager at Peninsula Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the heat and the humidity. I mean, horrific things going on in western provinces right now. A number of people have died uh, because of the heat. And it's been pretty hot and muggy here in southern Ontario as well, which is good as, as any time to remind you that nearly half of all long-term care residents in Ontario still don't have air conditioning in their rooms. That's despite a promise from Premier Doug Ford to mandate it. Global's Dave Woodard has details. It was over a month ago when Marilee Fullerton, then the long-term care minister, said 83% of rooms would have air conditioning by the summer. But according to new long-term care minister Rod Phillips, we're still not there yet. We've managed to have 60% uh, of the facilities have in-room air conditioning. And in the immediate term, uh, we will be getting another 23%. The other 17% of rooms will take a bit longer, Phillips says, because the infrastructure is older. Minister Phillips maintains rooms in long-term care homes without air conditioning isn't something the province will tolerate. This is a priority for me. I, we don't need the hot weather to remind us. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, the hot weather's here, Mr. Minister, and uh, we still have some concerns here and some problems. Now, he also announced a couple of other things, too, about some loosening of restrictions. We're going to get into that in a couple of seconds. Joining us to talk about all this is Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is a co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and also a professor at Ontario Tech University. Doctor, pleasure to have you back in the program. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, my friend. It's nice to talk to you. One of the other things that uh, Minister, newly minted Minister uh, Phillips uh, mentioned yesterday was uh, accepting culpability here, acknowledging that his own government has failed residents and families and staff members. As, as I heard that yesterday, Doctor, I thought, well, thank you for that, Captain Obvious. Uh, but what are you <laughs> going to do about it? I mean, that's that's the question we've been asking for the last two yeah. or three years, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no question about it. Listen, it is the most obvious for anyone who's been paying attention there's no doubt about it and it's been really offensive and really damaging for the previous minister uh to just completely deny any some sort of responsibility so you know that was step one to making amends because uh, you know and, and i had a conversation with uh the minister minister phillips last week and, and you know i even reiterated that there's been so much damage done to these families really everyone impacted by by this pandemic response to long-term care that you know, an apology <laughs> is really important. And families, although it's not going to bring back their loved ones, it's not going to change the nightmare that they've lived through. It's an admission. And, and families want two things. They want an admission of wrongdoing and they want to see action. And that's probably what's even, you know, obviously more important to them is action. So words are only so good. It's it, There's a parallel here. It, it, we're talking about truth and reconciliation. We're talking about Aboriginals today, of course, right across yeah. the country. And uh, it's we're, we're on a parallel path here with long-term care. Uh, you can't have you know any reconciliation until there's a recognition of culpability. And I guess that's a good first step for it. But you had that conversation with the Minister, Vivian. Did, did you walk away from that thinking this is going to be different? Yes and no. I mean, yes, in that, you know, he actually made an attempt to reach out to me and, and called. And that's something that I could not get if my life depended on it with Minister Fullerton over 15 months. So, sure, that's a great change. But, you know, I, I had I proposed a heck of a lot of things to him in our in our brief call. And, um, you know, I'm waiting for another meeting. And I'm hoping this is an ongoing communication a line that we're going to open up. But you know, I, I don't know what the next steps are. This was an easy win, opening up visitation more. I don't know why it couldn't have been done today. Frankly, it should have been done, you know, a month ago. I've been talking about this for two months now, but at least a good month. Uh, so, you know, July 7th, at least it's something to look forward to. Um, but there's still some problems with, you know, still having to force families to schedule their visits. Some bad actors are still, you know, 
not answering, you know, emails or phone messages in a timely manner and delaying the, the process of, you know, really reunification here. So, I, you know, there are things that can be fixed. It's a step in the right direction, of course, but we still fundamentally have to address the two biggest issues here, the staffing, you know, and the oversight and accountability of this sector. Uh, did that come up in the conversation? Oh, it sure as hell did. Sorry, pardon my French. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely did. You know, I made it very clear that, um, and I think everyone, you know, who's been paying attention to anything that I've been talking about the last year and a half knows that, you know, staffing is first and foremost. You know, I told him that he has to implement the, the minimum four-hour care standard now, not in four years. Uh, you know, there's two things that will, that are required to change the revolving door that persists in long-term care. It's the, the, the terrible working conditions, so the minimum care standard can help to that now. The other thing is the low pay, right? So these workers, you know, when you compare them to really any other sector, particularly acute care, um, it's laughable how much they get paid. And, and we've seen a, dis- a constant de-skilling of this workforce, whereas it used to be predominantly nurses that worked in these facilities, and now it's predominantly PSWs. And now, you know, resident support aides, which is the new de-skilled, uh, really anyone off the street who can come in this sector that they started during the pandemic, which was the worst possible thing to do. Um, so, of course, I told them, you know, the, these things need to be scrapped and you need to be focusing on upscaling this labor, not de-skilling it. And this is what's been happening in this sector for, you know, two decades now. It's not just his, you know, his government. But and furthermore, the, the fact that they, you know, all but canceled resident quality inspections. And, you know, I made it clear that that needs to be immediately reinstated in addition to putting more resources into their, you know, inspectors and hiring more and making sure that you have hefty penalties that hit these bad actors, predominantly for-profit bad actors, where it hurts their pocketbook, because you have to speak their language. You know, appealing to empathy, appealing to ethical integrity doesn't work with these people. Hit them where it hurts. And and that's a message that you've been consistent about. Uh, And I'm I'm just wondering how quickly he's going to hit the ground on this stuff. And it's not as if there's any lack of information about what needs to be done and even how to do it. There have been, what, three, four different, I guess, investigative reports that have been done into this. Uh, The minister just had six months off when he was not in cabinet. I hope he had time to read some of this stuff because it's all laid out there. There, There's a framework to, to be followed here, isn't there? Yeah, it's really easy. We know, you know, they could implement the the long-term care commission recommendations. I mean, and one of the big things there is that, um, you know, the the, the need to end and phase out for profit. I don't think there's any question there. The evidence is very clear on this, both pre-pandemic and clearly all throughout. So, you know, what we need to be doing and what is clearly within the evidence that exists is to really be building our municipal and then non-for-profit delivery models because there's no question that they outperform the for-profit on literally every single measure you can think of. There is no benefit to having a for-profit model in this sector, period. I dare somebody to actually show me evidence of for-profit superiority in this sector. I haven't found any of it. And there are elements to this that you've talked about that I hope the minister comprehends. I mean, it's, it's staffing levels, but the other element to this, too, is the, uh, the, the the low number of full-time staff at these facilities. Yeah. What, what we've heard, and I've heard this anecdotally from people that work in these facilities, is they, the predominant numbers of staff members in our part-time, which means they don't have to pay benefits, which means the pay is lower, yeah. uh, which means they're not making enough money, so they don't stay in the business very long. They go and find employment someplace else. Yeah. That's got to be addressed. I mean, for every one of these people that are coming in the front door with this new training program they talked about there's three more going out the back door no question listen i had this conversation with him <laughs> in very you know uh, no un- uncertain terms i said to him listen 
I've spoken to the, the unions who represent these workers, and they've been so far, you know, left out of, of conversations, frankly, by Minister Fullerton, and that's a big problem, and I did tell him that. They need to bring these people onto their staffing committees because they were left out. Um, so the thing is, you know, when you talk to the, the unions, you talk to the workers, this really makes no sense because you start bringing on these, you know, for-profit and temporary workers who by nature have to take on second and third jobs sometimes. So they are, you know, they're not available for overtime if they're needed because they're working at their other jobs. So then what they have, have to do, some of these, you know, uh, long-term care homes, is then pay overtime to the small base of full-time workers. So it ends up actually costing more than if you just had a predominant base of full-time workers. Like the split we should be aiming for is 70-30, 70, 70 uh, full-time, 30 part-time, and part-time permanent. None of this part-time precarious nonsense, right? Right now it's literally almost flipped to the opposite. This is a huge problem. You, don't, you need a stable and full-time workforce. You, it's a win all, all across every domain, right? You can build your training. You find that in the, work, in the long-term care homes with the higher full-time proportion of workers. They have higher vaccination rates because they tend to have more training. They understand the science. They're not, you know, anti-vax. I mean, these things matter when it comes to working in healthcare. You need highly trained, skilled workers that are, you know, have an allegiance to a specific home, that you can build that continuity of care. You know the work, you know the residents, you know their families. Families talk about all this all the time to me. You know, imagine when you have a new person in every day taking care of your loved one. You don't know the intricacies of what that resident needs. I mean, it's just bad all around. It doesn't make sense fiscally. It doesn't make sense from a care perspective. It doesn't benefit the workers. Nobody wins in this perspective except the for-profit owners, the shareholders, and the CEOs. That's it. Nobody else wins. I got a couple of minutes left, but there's one other issue that you and I have talked about consistently in the last uh, seven or eight months uh, that I, I think the minister has to address here, and it's the elephant in the room. And you just mentioned uh, for-profit as opposed to the public sector. Uh, it, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, the uh, number of people on the boards of, of these facilities, and as a matter of fact, some of the ownership groups, are former conservative, progressive conservatives. Yeah. They, they were either MPPs or they've been fundraisers for them, etc. And it's not coincidental that as soon as the Ford government came into power, all of a sudden, the inspections were cut by, well, God knows what, I think they did three in one year of all the 600-odd facilities. Uh, you're going to step on these people's toes. I mean, they're where a, a lot of the offenders are, is that group right now. Does this minister have the backbone to stand up to them and say, you're going to do it this way or you're going to get fined? Well, frankly, if he has any moral integrity, he, he's going to need to. Because what we're seeing right now is just a lack of political will and a lack of courage to do the right thing. Because there's no question what the right thing is here. And the fact that after the worst humanitarian crisis in our collective long-term care history unfolded before our eyes, and we are still really dilly-dallying at putting the kinds of meaningful changes we have in place, it is mind-blowing to those of us that have been paying attention and to anyone that's been involved in long-term care over this pandemic. There has been no greater sense of urgency to act now and we know what needs to be done, right? So there's no question. So I've been patient for this past week because he just got into this role. But make no mistake, the gloves will be coming off very soon if I don't start to see more changes. And I will respond accordingly, as I did with Minister Fullerton. Mm -hmm. And like you say, there's, there's a, a playbook here for them to follow, whether it's the military report or a combination of, I don't care which one he follows, because they're all uh, singing from the same song sheet here that something yeah. has to be done. Right. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you for spending some time with us today, and, and, and uh, I'm interested in the meeting that you had, and I'm hoping that's the first of many that you're going to have with the, the minister here to try to set the, uh, the, the things right here that need to be set. Thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well. Have a happy Canada Day tomorrow. Thank you. You too.
Take care. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Doctors for Justice uh, for Long-Term Care. And, well, maybe a little bit of hope with the new minister there that we're going to see some positive lights here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.